Well, good morning. Hope everybody's doing good this morning. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us today at Community Life Church on this beautiful Sunday morning. My name is Scott Verano, and I'm the lead pastor here at Community Life, and it is an honor just to have this time with you, whether you're here in the family room or joining us online. And I want to just go ahead and tell you that today is going to be the coolest Sunday that you've ever been a part of in your entire life. So I'm going to go ahead and set the expectation for you. So uh, that's right. So now let me explain to you why. So the month of October is our Disability Awareness Month. And so today is Disability Awareness Sunday, and we are going to celebrate and be a part of church in ways that are just, you're going to talk about for the rest of the week. So are you guys ready for a great Sunday? I am so excited. Now, before I have you stand up, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that um, when our friends in Encircle Life get together to pray, um, they have a, a way to go ahead and do that. It's a song. And so we're going to start off with the Lord's Prayer, but it's going to be in a way that's different than what you're accustomed to. So when we stand up, we're going to play a video, and you're going to get to hear our friends from Encircle Life sing the Lord's Prayer. If you're brave enough, sing along with them. If not, just enjoy it, and then when that's over, I'll pray, and we'll get started into the service. So I invite you, if you will, to stand and turn your attention to the screen, if you will. Father, we love you, God, and we thank you for this opportunity this morning to gather our hearts together with our friends, with our families, and really get to see the body of Christ on full display. And so as we gather in this space, Lord, we are so grateful for your presence, how you lead us, guide us, and love us well. Um, I know that there are people here today that are struggling, that are carrying heavy, heavy burdens into this place. And I pray that, that the marker of today would be that you would lift those burdens that you would allow us to experience peace and hope and for some people, freedom inside of their lives. 
lead us and guide us. We love you and trust you. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we get started with worship this morning, I just want to take a minute and introduce to you our In Circle worship team. Every single Sunday morning while we're here worshiping, they're upstairs worshiping as well. So this is Branch right here to my right on acoustic guitar and vocals. And then in the middle, lovely Aaron. And then on the end there, Jeff, take a, take a bow, Jeff. <laughs> So we're going to worship, and uh, just let's just sing together. It's such a beautiful thing when all God's people come together to worship. So we're going to do that this morning.
we continue to press into worship this morning, we just open up our hearts. God, we want to be available to you. We want to be open and ready for you to move in whatever way you want. So just continue to do a work in us this morning. Amen. Let's continue to worship him. Help us by putting your hands together. Yeah. my heart
providing everything that we need and more, including the very breath in our lungs, God. And I pray that we would take all that you've given us and that we would turn it back to you in, in praise and that we would utilize every, each and every gift that, uh, that you've bestowed upon us just to, uh, to lift your name high and bring glory to you. God, I thank you that we get to come together with every single background that we have in our church and, and come together for the singular purpose of worshiping you and, and knowing you on a deeper level, Father. And I thank you that as we do that, as we come together and lift your name high and as we come and, uh, and receive um, some, some word of you in the sermon, God, that, that you will move in that. And um, I, I pray that you do just that, that you would deepen our, our knowledge of you and that you would uh, enrich that that coming together, that, that every, uh, every praise that we lift in your name, God, that you would bless it, that you would smile upon it, and that, and that more than anything, God, that you'd be glorified by it. We love you and thank you, and we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Before you're seated, we've got one more song. Uh, the Encircle Worship Team is going to lead us in, and I know it's one that you know really, really well, so uh, they're going to lead us in this song before we're seated this morning. So take it away, Branch. He's got the whole world in his hand. He's got the whole world in his hand. He's got the whole world in his hand. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother. In his hand, he's got you and me, brother. CLC. Welcome, and then you may be seated. Thanks for being here. I am my God. I have autism. It makes it hard to talk to people. So I have to put words together in videos. Some people look at me funny because of the way I move and the noises that I make. When I'm excited, I make loud noises and shake my arms. I can, I can help it. Sometimes people talk about me like I'm not there. When I'm standing right next to them, they think because I don't talk that I don't understand. 
I hear everything. I hear more than you. It's hard to make friends when you can't talk to people. It doesn't mean I don't want friends. Everyone wants friends. I have autism, but autism is not me. I am a person. I am Micah. Can we give Micah and our Encircle Life crew a big round of applause? And I'm so proud of them. It has been a full, exciting Sunday morning. Oh, it has been a full, exciting Sunday morning. We never knew what was going to happen today, but it has been awesome. How's that? So I want to introduce to you uh, Joan Buck. She is one of the co-leaders of Encircle Life. And um, Joan is going to tell you a little bit about Encircle Life, and then she's got a whole bunch of stuff she wants to tell you about. Is that fair? Oh, I do. Yes. Yeah, she said she'd I take do. the whole rest of the service by letter. So at some point, if I just start <laughs> kind of moving her to the edge, no, I'm kidding. So go ahead. Tell them about Encircle Life. We haven't gotten to that point yet, but we may. That's right. Okay. <laughs> First off, thank you all for inviting us in Circle Life to have this day of inclusion, as uh, Pastor Scott mentioned, that the entire month of October is dedicated to disability awareness. And am I echoing? You're good. Okay. And uh, <laughs> so it's not like we just randomly chose this day. This is a nationwide initiative. The thing I really want to point out about Micah's video, when Micah talks, and Micah is one of our students, when Micah talks about how he's not seen, how people talk around him like he's not there, how he feels invisible, that's not unique to Micah. That is a theme throughout our entire special abilities community. And that's something we just need to be aware of. We have a little thing we say, just start with hello, right? A, a quick little, hey, how you doing, Good. right? Yeah. And sometimes you can be a little nervous about that maybe, uh, you know, depending on who you're talking to, and that's okay. They might be a little nervous too. But it's okay to just say that little bit to them, give them a little welcome, let them feel seen, let them feel included, please. So a little bit about encircle ministry. We did start out as an adult Sunday school class uh, ages ago, and we are now a full ministry. Thank you to the church for that. And so we have grown into kid men through youth all the way into the adult. So to say it easily, our students are ages 7 to 70, uh, although we have some younger than 7. And while talking about the kid men, I want to share this one very touching comment uh, from one of our younger students' mother. What she said was, when she looks at Encircle Life, she sees the future that her son can have. It gives her hope. Amen. 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 That's, that's why. That's why Encircle is here. And so we invite you to be a part of it. And 
Can I just lead right on into the volunteers you're, and stuff? Well, no, no. Well, that's, <laughs> you're getting ahead of the questions. I I'm have sorry. questions for you, Joan. Sorry. Tell sorry, us, do you have um, any questions what, for what is it that you love most about Encircle Life? I mean, you started <laughs> off as just like a oncer. Like, you're going to go up and check it out. But, I mean, it has consumed you. This has become a part of your life. So tell us what you love most about Encircle Life. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is true. Uh, I signed up about a year and a half ago as a volunteer. They said, just come, you know, once a month. Come up to the classroom. Kind of just help us out. And I did that, and then I started coming more and more, and I was there every single week. And finally, one of the teachers looked at me and said, why are you here every week? <laughs> and I said, because I love it, because of the joy I feel when I walk in this room. I can literally have a horrible week at work, walk into that room, and everything is gone. Yeah. It's one of the many, just one of the many, many things that make this church so special. Mm. Yep, so this church loves to connect Love to find places to plug in. So, so give us some ideas. And I know you, you mentioned two of them in the, in the previous services. Give us some ways that we can support and circle life and continue to help it grow. Absolutely. So uh, the two ways, of course, are volunteering and serving. And uh, just real quick, because I didn't mention this in the other services, uh, that Encircle Life isn't just about you all supporting us. We are out there supporting you. Our students are greeters. They work in the church. They work down in Kidman. And they are all throughout the church serving back. And they're ambassadors in the community. I mean, when they're out Absolutely. at... Uh, Miracle League or doing the different things. I mean, they represent well, don't they? They certainly do. Miracle League, Special Olympics, and we gain more and more students through those activities outside of this campus. Uh, so it really is a very broad reach. And uh, so the two ways you can give are the volunteer, which the QR code is up there. Now, please know that that volunteer, that QR code doesn't say, you know, sign me up, coach, I'm ready to play. That QR code is just, may I have some more information? It's a very basic, may I have your name and contact info? Then we'll connect with you, and as we know, you will pray about how to serve. Uh, when those answers come to you, we're ready for you. Uh, the second thing is we do have a, a table out front, and we have a th two fundraisers going on today, actually. Uh, in the, one of the QR codes on the back of your chair is for giving. That one will, today, have a drop-down for Encircle, so you can donate directly to encircle through the QR code. And then we have, we're selling bracelets and some handmade hearts that have crosses embedded in them out front, and they're absolutely beautiful. And uh, the hearts were actually made by one of our special abilities teachers. Okay. And so, um, well, you just, that's, that's awesome. Uh, 11%. You got ahead of me. You stopped too fast. You didn't let me get, um, so we were thinking about, oh, I know what it was. Joan and I were having a conversation before service. And she said, Scott, did you know that only about 11% of churches even have a special abilities ministry? And I was like, I didn't know that because this church, from the very first day that I showed up, had a group of people that cared strongly about this ministry and have always been bringing people in and plugging them in and getting them connected. And so I, I love it because this group is not just a part of the church. They go out into the community. They take the mission of connecting people to Jesus, and they're going out. They've always been a part of that. So to hear that it's now expanding down into children's ministry and, and in a youth ministry, I tell you, it does my heart good because that's what we're all about, right? Oh, absolutely. The full expression of Jesus. And even within, in fact, I wish we had our mission statement up there. Our mission statement for Encircle is, uh, our mission is to connect people of all abilities to God in a community where they are welcomed, supported, and encouraged to grow in faith. And that's exactly what this, this ministry does. I do want to say real quick, we have... One student, well, our students are so talented. You saw our musicians up here. We have artists. We have caregivers. We, they're everything. 
We have one student who wants to be a pastor. He even already does on Facebook, on his page, he will do messages and, and many sermons. One of his, which I love, is just my absolute favorite. He says, that's God knocking, let him in. Amen? Don't you wish all <laughs> sermons were that short? Right, like, we need to put that guy on staff. I'm serious. <laughs> he would love to be there. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, Joan, thank you for what you do. And um, it's, it's just incredible to stand up here with my friends and get to see them use their giftings and their talents. And it's not just here. They do it every single Sunday morning. Yes. And we're so tremendously blessed. Can you guys give Joan a big round of applause? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, today has been, it has been an incredible Sunday uh, getting to see all of the, the different talents on full display. It's been beautiful, but um, I want to welcome you. Thank you for joining us today at Community Life Church. My name is Scott Verno, lead pastor here at the church, and um, I'm just appreciative of the fact that you'd be here or joining us online. At Community Life, we love God, we love our neighbor, and we believe that our mission is to connect people to Jesus because we believe that Jesus is the source of life. And so our hope is that you will Grab a hold of that source of life, allow it to transform your life, but then share it with as many people as you encounter. And um, if you will allow us to, we'd love to be right alongside you in this journey for whatever it is that, that you're walking through. And um, we would consider it a, a part of our mission to be able to do that. So, um, so one, one more announcement, and then we're going to jump into our series. Uh, so as we're moving into this holiday season, um, I want to remind you that we are collecting food for our Thanksgiving food drive so on your way out today, maybe stop by and pick up one of those cards that lists all the different things that we're putting in those bags. And next time you go shopping, grab them, bring them back, and, and we'll get those together uh, to give out. But we're also gathering names of folks that are struggling this time of year. Could be you, could be a family member, could be someone that lives there in your community, um, but we just need to gather those together. Could be somebody online. If you will send us an email, um, info at clc.life, uh, that'll let us reach back out to you. We're very discreet with that information get your information and, and just and make sure that we can bless you. And, and our hope is this, is that on Thanksgiving Day, that we can provide for you all of the things necessary for you just to focus on family. Put the food together, cook it, not have to worry about paying for all of that, and it can just be a blessing to you. So if that speaks to your heart, jump in some way, somehow, and, um, and let's help make that a reality. Okay, so we are in the second part of our series on Galatians, and this series is called Galatians because it is a series about Galatians. And I love that. They didn't get ahead of me and rename it. Um, they just named it what it is, which helps me tremendously because sometimes it gets too flowery and I can't remember. So we're going to call this series exactly what it is, which is a study of Paul's letter to the church that was in Galatia. And one of the things I love about this series is that this letter covers some of the most foundational, fundamental points of our faith. Now, for those of you who have been coming for a long time, um, you know what Galatians is about, or at least you know that it's a letter in the New Testament, but maybe you're here today and you're new to church, new to faith, or you don't even know why you showed up today. Um, just to set the expectation for you, what we're going to do over the next 30 minutes is we're going to study a letter that's found in the New Testament that was written by what I call one of the bigs of the faith, one of the people that were most well-known, one of the apostles. And he writes this letter to churches to, an ad to address an issue that's going on in those churches. And so our hope in reading it is to understand what the issue is, to try and find the context and everything that goes around it so we can wrestle out of it what will help us to live 
better into our faith. So if you're not a believer, of course, I would hope that you would become a believer. But maybe in this series, you can learn what we're supposed to be believing. And, and so by doing all of that, we'll understand our faith better. So here's the setup for you. Um, the Apostle Paul is believed to be the letter. Now you may say, Scott, how do you know that Paul wrote this? He actually signed it. So thank you, Paul, for signing it. Not all of the letters that we have in the New Testament were signed. And we have no reason to believe that somebody else would sign his name to it um, because the, the, the doctrine and the theology that's contained in there fits and matches what Paul believed. Um, it was written 15 to 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So somewhere in the late 40s or early 50s AD is when we believe that this would have been written. And it was written to the churches in Galatia. Now, Galatia is not a place. It is a region. And there are churches that Paul started in this region, and he's writing these letters to them. And so I've got a map here on the, on the screen behind me. And I'll just go ahead and give you your bearings. Down here is Israel. So here's the Dead Sea. Here's the Sea of Galilee. And this area up here is known as Galatia, this entire region. And so Paul, who used to be, a, 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 or still was, Jewish, he was persecuting the early Christian church. And then he became a believer in Christ and became a part of that early church. Well, during those first 14 years, he spent time here in the south part of Galatia, learning, working out the theology, and trying to figure out what he believes and how Christ connects into this theology. And so he would he spent his first 14 years doing that, but then eventually he started on these missionary journeys. And his first missionary journey takes him over here to the island of Cyprus. And from there, he jumps up and he goes to the interior of Galatia. And that first missionary journey is where he started those churches. And he goes into the churches and he starts to preach his understanding of theology and then after he establishes a church, he goes on and he starts another church and he starts another church and he starts another church. And so after doing that, Paul gets frustrated because when he would leave a church, another group of people would come in behind him and they were teaching a theology that did not line up with what he was teaching. And so here's Paul's theology. Paul taught this, that you could be justified or found to be righteous or you could be saved by faith in Christ period. Nothing else. That if you believed in Jesus, then you could be justified or you could be saved. And Paul taught that that was all that it took. Nothing else. Well, then this group of people come in behind him and they were teaching a message that sounded like this. That yes, you should believe in Jesus, but then you also had to do the works of the law. That you had to convert to Judaism and then start practicing everything that the law taught. And for Paul, he would say, absolutely not. You do not need to add anything else to the work that Jesus did, that the work that Jesus did on the cross was enough. And so faith in Jesus would justify you, that righteousness would be what was, would save you. And so he writes this letter to address this false teaching or this misunderstanding that was going on in his early church and hopefully to rectify it. Now, one of the things I didn't say is that they believe that this letter to the Galatians is one of the earliest letters that he wrote. Well, it's either Galatians or it's First uh, and Second Thessalonians, and, and here's why that matters. Paul's theology grew as time went on, and so these early um, theological statements that we're going to look at are the very foundation. But as he wrote more and more and more, that theology became refined. And so what we're studying today, and by the way, theology just means your thought on God or your understanding of God. So his theology was more refined as he fleshed it out in the letters. 
And so they believe this to be one of his first letters because it was very raw, very straightforward, and very fundamental. He continues to develop as he goes forward. And so last week, we studied Galatians chapters 1 and 2. Today, we're going to look at 3 and 4, and next week, 5 and 6, if you want to go ahead and read ahead. But in chapters 1 and 2, we looked at Paul's greeting to the churches in Galatia, and then he builds a case for himself and his faith, how he was, um, how he was converted to, to belief in Jesus. And then he starts to build the case for the theology that he's going to stand on. And then he gives us that theology. And here's what it was. That we are justified by, or found to be righteous by faith in Jesus, period. And that we are not justified by the works of the law. And so in Paul's terminology, we're justified or found to be righteous by faith in Jesus and not by doing good things. Not by, by piling up all of the good works that we can do in life. That does not justify us, but rather our belief in Jesus. And then he ends with this statement that I think is so profound, and it describes for us what it means to believe in Jesus. What's the change that happens in our life? Verse 19 and 20 of chapter 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, so my life, my sinful nature has been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So the good works that I do are not because I have righteousness inside of me, but it's because of the faith that I live now. And so you can go do the law all you want, but it doesn't pile up righteousness. It's by the faith that we live inside of us that we are found righteous because of the righteousness of God. And so life going forward is not about my life. It's about the life of Christ that's inside of me. And so we start to remove all of the impediments and all the things that stand between the world seeing Jesus inside of us. And that's what it means for life going forward. And so as we move into chapters three and four, if one and two gave us the theology, now three and four are going to argue for the theology that Paul builds. Now I'll just go ahead and remind you, Paul was frustrated he was angry. He was mad at the Galatian church for so quickly backing up from the things that he taught them. And so as we start to read um, these first few verses, you get a sense of, of how frustrated he is. So listen to chapter 3, verse 1. He says, you foolish Galatians. Isn't that kind? Right? It seems so nice that he would say this to them. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. He's like, don't, don't you remember you heard the story? You heard how God sent his son to this world and died for you. You heard the story. You held on to it. You believed it. It was right before your very eyes that you bore witness to this. Verse 2, he says, the only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish having started with the Spirit? Are you now ending with the flesh? And you can hear his disdain and his frustration with them. Verse 4, did you experience so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Well then, and he asked the question again, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? And so here's what he does. If, if you are in high school or if you love to debate things, what, what Paul does in this chapter three and four is he asks a question and then he provides evidence to back up his claim. 
And so that's what three and four are about. So I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, if you're not a Bible nerd, you might be bored out of your mind for the next 15 minutes, okay? I'm going to just teach it, and then eventually I'm going to try and bring it all back around so that it makes sense. So if you need to dial out, if you're ADHD prone like me, just go somewhere else in your mind, and I'll, I'll call you back. I'll get your attention. I'll reel you back in at some point. But he's, he's asked the questions. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Now, I can't go past this without saying this. Something must have happened in Paul's time with the Galatian churches. They must have truly had a conversion experience because he's pointing to it. Did you receive the Spirit by the law that you studied all along? Or when you heard this message, did it transform you? Did it change you? So he's referencing back to the change that they all experienced together, almost as if to say, what you experienced should have kept you from going back and changing your direction on this theology. But he's going to go ahead and build the case anyways. So verses 6 down through 9, he's going to take up the first part of, the first part of his argument, which is about belief and about having faith. And, so, and, and I also need to say this. He uses the law or scripture to prove what he's about to say. Now, if you're an English teacher um, or an English major, I need to let you know that Paul does not cite his works well. Um, I always had to do a, a, a work cited page, and I failed at that particular point because I was never good at it. I never knew how to exactly write it. Paul must have, I was in good company. He doesn't write down the scripture references. He just quotes them. So I'm going to tell you what the scripture references are as I read them. So here we go. He says, just as Abraham, quote, and this is Genesis 15, 6, believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So you see, those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. And he continues on. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, quote, and this is Genesis chapter 12, verse three, all the Gentiles shall be blessed in you, end quote. For this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham who believed. And so the first part of his argument is about this understanding of receiving through faith. And he picks up this story of Abraham. And he reminds them of scripture going back to Genesis 15 and Genesis 12, where God calls Abraham and says, I, I want you to leave your family and go to a land that I will show you. And when he gets there, he asks him to look out across the land. And he says, I want you to look out as far as you can see, and I want you to know that I am going to bless you, and I am going to make your ancestors as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and it's through you that, I, that there will be a blessing that is offered to the world. And scripture says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul picks this up, and he says, can you see? Way back in the beginning, if you look at Abraham's life, because he chose to believe it was credited to him as righteous. So he starts to build that foundation. And he goes on to say, because the promise was going to come through Abraham, that if you believe, then you are a son or a daughter or an heir to Abraham, which brings to me a song. And if you grew up in church, you're going to remember this song. And the song goes like this. Father Abraham has many sons. Okay, so you guys are going to leave me hanging out there, just like every other service did as well, right? But you know, that song is in your gut. So I have to try it because eventually Tammy doesn't ever let me sing. So I got to try at least once in a while. But if you believe and it's credit to yours righteousness, then you are a son or a daughter of Abraham. You're connected through that belief. And that's, that's the first part of the argument that, that Paul gives us. But then he goes on in 10 through 14. 
And he's going to take up the other side. And these four statements that he's going to make is to really argue against um, this receiving of the Spirit through the works of the law. So four different scriptures, I'll give you the references, and here's what he says about the law. The first one, he says in verse 10, he says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, quote, and this is Deuteronomy 27, 26, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law, end quote. And so in essence, here's the law that's out there. If you make a mistake at just one of them, then you are cursed under the entire law, just so as you know. He throws that out there as the first part of understanding that it's not through the law that you're receiving the promise because through the law, you are actually being revealed to as being cursed. The second part, verse 11. Um, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for, and this is Habakkuk uh, chapter two, verse four, the one who is righteous will live by faith. And so even in Habakkuk as a prophet, he tells us, It's not by the law that you will be found righteous, but rather it's by faith. And so the law itself tells you that you're going to be justified by faith. Verse 12, but the law does not rest on faith. On the contrary, and this is Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, whoever does the works of the law will live by them. In other words, you're only as good as what you can accomplish. You alone, you are going to live by the works of the law and by what you have accomplished. That's it. So you yourself are the end of the story. And so he's letting you know that the law has no power to make you more than yourself. It just is what it is. It tells you something about yourself. And then finally, verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and this is Deuteronomy 21, 23, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so he brings back this awareness of what it means for Christ's life and righteousness to be substituted for us, that we receive Christ. He was cursed, hung on a tree, and because he was sinless, he was that sacrifice for us that when we receive that into our lives, we are able to receive forgiveness. And in verse 14, he gives you what that promise is all about. He says, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so Jesus was cursed so that we could receive freedom and so that we could receive the promise. So he's asked the two questions, and then he gave you the evidence to support what it is that he believes. Now, when you get down to verses 15 through 18, he's going to open up a whole new argument. And so it's argument after argument after argument to prove his point. And so here we go. Let's follow along in this next argument. He says, brothers and sisters, I give an example from daily life. Once a person's will has been ratified, no one adds to it or annuls it. So if you make a will and it's your will, then no one else is going to change that. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings as of many, but it says, and to your offspring, that is to one person who is Christ. And so what what Paul is saying is that the promise that was made to Abraham would be realized in the life of Christ, that Christ would be that offspring that would then be a blessing to the rest of the world. Verse 17, my point is this, the law which came 430 years later, did not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance comes from the law, it no longer comes from the promise. But God granted it to Abraham through the promise. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying God made this promise to Abraham 
430 years before the law ever showed up. And so why would God, who made this promise, take that promise away by creating something else? No, that wasn't the intent at all, that the law does not have that ability to take away those promises. And so once again, he settles on the importance of faith found in believing in God, and he anchors it right there in Abraham. And so you get to that end of that part of the argument. And if you were Paul, you're thinking pretty good. Like you're like, okay, that's very good, very good, very good. But if somebody was reading along, they'd go, okay, so faith is found in believing in God, and it was accredited to righteousness to Abraham. So, so we can understand that. So why the law? Why did you even give us the law? And Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you exactly why. And we get to verse 19. He says, why then the law? So he's going to explain it to us. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring would come to whom the promise had been made. And so, so let me explain this to you. Do you remember the story of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt? And so biblical scholars, when they go back and they read and they study and they do population growth, they believe that at a minimum, when Moses left Egypt and he made his way to Mount Sinai, that there was at a minimum one million people that were going with him. More than likely, two million people. And so as he's leading across, what you need to know is that Moses is leading a group of people and they have no idea who God is. They just know that God has led them out of Egypt. They have no picture. They don't know who he is. Some of the stories that were shared through Abraham's family that got them into Egypt, but really those are very small stories for them to be able to capture and hold on to. And so what God does is he gives Moses the law. He gives Moses the law so that these one million or two million people can now start to see and understand even a a, a, a small reflection or a small understanding of what the nature of this God is all about. Now, I just, uh, well, we'll get to it in a second. This nature of this God is all about. And so, so God gives him the law, gives him the Ten Commandments. And really, that law is to reveal to them the transgressions. Now, one of the things I did this morning, just, just so I could look at this, was I wanted you to, to hear the nature of the Ten Commandments, because we forget this. The Ten Commandments and, and what they tell us, because sometimes I think we believe that they're more than what they actually are. And so the first one is, you, you shall have no other God before you. You shall have no other God before, before me. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember to keep the, the Sabbath day holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness about your neighbor. You shall not covet, and you sh or you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not cover your neighbor's goods. And so here's what the law does. It tells you what not to do, but it does not give you a whole lot of insight about what? What to do. And so with the law in its rawest form, it just tells you where you've blown it and how you've made a mistake. And so it was added because of the transgression so that people could know when they were not in keeping with the understanding of God. Verse 21. So he goes on to, he asks another question. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could make alive, then righteousness would indeed come through the law. And so the law could not make anyone alive. It could only tell you how you were dead. It could only reveal to you the depravity and the brokenness of what our life is all about. And he goes on in verse 22 to explain that. He says, but the, but the, scripture, um, um, but the scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin. 
And so that law was given to us and it imprisoned us by revealing to us our brokenness and our sinful nature so that what was promised through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so we can see our brokenness, we can see our need to be saved, and so when the promise was fully extended and offered to us, we were able to see the one that was not just a reflection, but the one that was, God that was revealed to us. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were in prison and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Verse 24, therefore the law was our disciplinarian. Think of a tutor, someone that walks alongside you and trains you and tells you the right things to to follow. He says, until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So when you believe in Christ, you are born again. We go and remove ourselves from under this power of sin to be born into the family of God and to have a whole new connection to the heart of God. Now I'm going to skip the rest of that and let's jump on into chapter 4. I'll read this, and then I'll, then I'll quickly kind of paraphrase everything for you. He says, my point is this. Heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves, though they are owners of all the property, but they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the father. Have you ever, um, you, you own a house, you pay all the bills, and your child comes in, and they're hot, and they decide to turn down the thermostat. And you're like, uh-uh, not until you're paying the bills can you determine what the temperature is. Now, truth be known, all of the things belong to them, but they don't have control over it yet. And Paul is telling you that was what the law was like. It set those parameters for them. Verse 3, he says, So with us, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. This phrase is something that's so interesting. It means the very basic understanding of the law. The simplest form of the law, the ABCs, if you will. That law that was given, those commandments, it's just a very minor reflection of what God is like. He says, we were subjected to those elemental spirits or that very basic understanding of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. We're going to talk about that in a moment. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. And what he does through the rest of chapter four is give you a couple more examples to prove his point. And so if you want to go home and read it, continue to do that, but you're just going to get another example following another example. I think we've got enough to go ahead and and, and try and land this plane. And so here's what I'd like to say in these last few moments together. We read through all of that, and and if you're ADHD and you're you're off somewhere else, come on back. I've I've got four minutes, and I'm going to try and tie it all up together so that you can see what Paul is saying. So, So just follow along with me. When Paul left those early churches, when he walked and went to another church to begin another church, I want you to know that the churches he left, they were connected to the heart of God, that they believed that Jesus was crucified on a cross, died, and rose again to reveal the love of God for this world. And in that belief, they yielded their lives by faith and found freedom, hope, strength, peace, forgiveness, and they were growing because they were connected to God. But then someone came in after Paul 
And in Paul's mind, took away from them their connection to the heart of God and instead handed them a set of rules or a list of governing principles and tried to convince them that the rules were more important than their connection to God. And Paul says, absolutely not. In verse three, he says, why would you start with the spirit, the actual connection to God, and then exchange it and go back to the flesh or the rudimentary guidelines that don't even look like God? I've been trying to come up with an example, and this is imperfect and maybe not even exactly right, but it would be the difference between me holding up a picture of my son and me having my son right next to me and me choosing the picture of my son versus actually my son, trying to be and understand what my son is all about by this pale image of what he's all about or having my son in my life. Those are the two things, the law versus having the actual relationship in your life. And so let me go one step further. We just finished the series on the gospel according to Matthew. And Jesus does something so profound in chapter five. And he really makes the point. He said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. Now, can we all agree that that's the law? Can we all agree that murder is no good? Yes, Yes. okay. So, it's not good to murder. He says, we all, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable for judgment. So think about this. According to Jesus, it is actually possible to not break that understanding of the first law, but still live contrary to the heart of God. And so I ask you, is it better to have a description of God or God himself? And this is why Jesus' teaching and life was so important, because he revealed to us the intent and the heart of God. For God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus was the expression of God given to this world. And so when you go look at the Ten Commandments, at least the horizontal ones, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, no false witness, don't covet. Um, why, Why would we not do those things? Because it's not in the nature of God. And when you understand the intent of God and his heart and his love for humanity, then when you are a part of that and you receive and you have relationship with God, you no longer even break that law. You're gonna go to a deeper level because you understand the heart of God. And so finally, here's my last thought. Paul's theology of no longer being subject to the law, but now being adopted as children. Hear these scripture one more time. Verse three in chapter four. He says, so with us, we were minors. We were enslaved to those elemental spirits of the world. So we had just a, a little bit of the image of God. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born of the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. We saw God reveal himself in the person of his son or God revealed, God himself came and walked among us. Verse six, and because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. We would say, so you are no longer a slave to that, but because of your faith, you have been born again. And if a child, then also an heir through God. So you have stepped away from being under this curse of law, your natural self, and you have been born again as a child of God, which allows you to cry, Abba, Father. And so I just want to ask you, I want you to think, and so just process this statement. And this question, if the law 
is a pale and incomplete image of God and requires us to live a certain way, what do you think it looks like to know and be considered a child of God? Does being a child of God require less change or more? To be a believer actually means this, that you are not just commanded to love God and to love your neighbor, you actually do love God and you actually do love your neighbor because that's who you are. That as a son and a daughter of God, it becomes a part of who you are. It's no longer about following the rule. It's about being a child of God. And so when we pray thy kingdom come, when you understand as a believer your place in faith and you accept Jesus into your heart and you're born again, then the very nature of our lives and the work of transformation is to reveal not our best selves, but to reveal Christ in our lives. And so it requires transformation and getting the garbage out so that when people look at us, they actually see Christ. And it's in that being born again that we have the ability to cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba is so powerful. It literally means dad. It's a relationship with a father. Yes, we understand God and we would never take away from the sovereign nature of who God is. But when you are born again, you are connected to God as if God is your father, because you are a son and a daughter of the king. And so your relationship with God turns into this very personal, beautiful understanding of growing into who God is. And so here, here's how I would end this sermon. I pray that in our lives, we can truly maybe wrestle with what it means to be transformed and to, and to get the garbage out so that people can see Jesus. But, but if you're here today and you're not a believer, I would pray that you would understand what it means to completely change your life altogether. That in the brokenness and the hurt of this world and what you've experienced, that you have an opportunity to believe that God loved you so much that 2,000 years ago, he sent the full expression of himself into this world to provide you a way to be removed from the brokenness of the heartache and the sin that you're experiencing. And it's by giving our lives away and receiving that substitution of Christ in our lives that we can be free. You can change your heart and your life together by simply choosing to believe in that narrative and that understanding of who God is. It's not a special prayer. It's just believing that God loves you. And then diving in and finding out more about that God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. I thank you for the the very simple nature of this scripture, but God, also the richness of, of what it sets up for us. That yes, it's simple, but it means a life of, of revealing and trusting and, and processing, um, not, not to pile up the good things that we can do, but to reveal your goodness inside of us as you continue to, to, to just allow our faith to grow, as we stand and as we hold on to that beautiful grace, that beautiful gift that you've given us in your son, Jesus. And I pray that today people would open up their hearts and choose to receive that gift. God, we love you. We trust you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now I invite you, if you will, to stand. And uh, the words to this song are absolutely perfect to close out the, the sermon today. Um, Addie's down front on this side. I'm going to be on this side. Um, if you'd love prayer, we'd love to be able to pray with you. But I encourage you to allow the, the words of this song really to speak to your heart today.
message of hope, a message uh, that you can take with you when you leave this place, a realization that your identity is that you're a child of God. I love that we are a church who makes space for, for all the people, right? Where we share our hearts, 
We live into our faith and we allow the gospel to transform us after we leave this place and those places that we go. If you're new here, maybe this is your first time in this place with us. We'd love to connect with you in our next steps room immediately after the service. But before we go, let's pray. Abba, Father, Daddy, God, we look to you with grateful hearts that you would include us into your family. God, that you would call us into a life that is connected to you. So I pray that as we leave this place, you would help us to share that love, that truth with everybody we come in contact with and help us to love you, love our neighbors, and connect people back to your son. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. We love you all. Have a great week.